<laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> That's that O-N-O-F-F switch again. Okay. Isaiah chapter 44. <clears throat> when we were in the park last week, we went all the way through to verse 6. Now, as we're looking at this first part of Isaiah 44, Isaiah begins to speak about pouring his spirit out. And then he begins to make a comparison um, Beginning at verse 6, he begins to make a comparison between the true and living and holy and righteous God and everything else. And so as he, as he begins this comparison, <clears throat> let's just remember where we were in verse 6. It says, thus says the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D, okay? Lesson number one, when you study the word of God and you come to capital L-O-R-D, it's what's known as the tetragrammaton. It's the consonants within the name of God. Y-H-V-H. Some people say Y-H-W-H. The reason for that is in the English there's two letters. In the Hebrew there's not. W and V are the same letter in Hebrew. So <clears throat> there's four consonants. Remember in ancient Hebrew there were no vowels. All they wrote were consonants. Then as time progressed... The, the priesthood would not write the holy name of God lest someone would be able to utter that name, uh, uh, you know, taking the, Lord, uh, the name of the Lord in vain. So what would happen is the high priest on his deathbed would come the next priest, usually his son, or some member within the, the Aaronic priesthood or Aaron's family, would come to the high priest, and as the high priest was perishing, as he was dying, he would whisper... God's name in his ear. So today, we only write it in our English Bible, says capital L-O-R-D. But that is not just Lord. That is God's name. Y-H-V-H. Some would say his name is Jehovah. But we know it's not Jehovah because there's no J in the Hebrew alphabet. It could be Yehovah. It could be Yahweh. It could be anything between the two of those and something else. I mean, they just come up with those by adding the vowels either of Adonai or El Shaddai. They add the vowels in, and that's what they come up with. But the point that we need to understand is this. When you see capital L-O-R-D, that's the covenantial name of God. The very name. Lost to us today, we say generically the name God. But God is not God's name. His name, we'll find out when we see him face to face. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus returns, he will have a new name written. And we'll see that new name. Perhaps it's this name that has been lost, the, the name of God. And across his leg will be written, King of kings and Lord of lords, the word of God. So, so we will know this name at some point but today we don't but when we see it we need to know we're talking about the as as holy a place as you could get when you see capital l-o-r-d it's absolutely the name of god thus says the lord the king of israel and his redeemer the lord of hosts now over and over again we've talked about this concept of the trinity in the scriptures and an understanding that as we go through the scriptures it is implied everywhere. For example, the name of God, Elohim, is plural. Used with singular, it's a plural uh, word used 
in a singular sense in sentence structure. In the Hebrew, it wouldn't make any sense except if you were trying to say a multiplicity of persons, one God. When God is described as, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one God. He doesn't use the number one. He uses the word for unified, echad. And that word is defined according to the principle of first mention in marriage between a man and a woman. And the two shall become echad, one. Not just one, right? They're, they're not one singular. They're one plural. So one of the things we see here is an allusion to that. Thus says the Lord, the covenantal name of God, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer. And whose Redeemer? And the Lord's Redeemer. And, and the Redeemer that God will send. His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Well, what are we talking about here? Well, he goes on to tell us then in the, in the next phrase of verse 6, I am the first and I am the last. Now, we know here that it's God the Father that's speaking. The Father is laying out, I'm the first. There was nothing before me. I am the last. There will be nothing that outlasts me. I am the first and the last. Beginning and the end. This is it. This is all there will ever be. Before me, there was nothing. After me, there is nothing. I am. So when we look at that, we understand that. Remember, we, we, we won't go there today, but we referred to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, where Jesus Christ takes on the name of I am the first and the last. The covenantal name of God takes on the name I am the first and the last. They both are calling themselves the same thing. What does that mean? One is a liar, or they're telling the truth. The truth being that Jesus Christ is deity. He is God. Why is that important? Folks, in the Gospel of John, around chapter 8, Jesus said something like this. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What did he mean? I am is one of the covenantal names of God. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses said, Lord, who shall I send, send, say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am. And Jesus said, unless you believe, I am, you'll die in your sin. We have to come to the realization of who Jesus is. That's why we butt heads with so many of the, the cults. Because they take either the divinity or the humanity of Jesus and they mess it up. And then they say, well, we're just like everybody else. No, you're not. It's a different Jesus. If your Jesus is not God or very God, according to what the scriptures teach, if your Jesus is the archangel Michael, that's not God or very God. That's not the same Jesus, not the same God. We're not the same. If your Jesus is a created being, the brother of Satan, it's not the same. It's not the same. And Jesus himself said, lest you believe, I am, you'll die in your sin. So we have here the covenantal, covenantal name of God being applied to Jesus and to the Father. And by the way, it's also applied to the Holy Spirit. And this is not the only place throughout the scriptures. But let's go on. He says, and who can proclaim as I do? Let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. 
Do not fear nor be afraid. Haven't I told you from the time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Now, another question. Who is the rock? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us the rock is Jesus. There is no other rock, no other foundation, no other thing that you can cling to. Again, we see this confirmed in Scripture. And again, remember, he's making a case. Okay, here am I, I'm God. I'll tell you the end from the beginning. Nothing happens except that I have told you what's coming. And what I've told you is coming will absolutely come to pass. Then he goes on. I jump ahead of you. Then he goes on and says, now, in in verse 9, Those who make an image, all of them are useless. So now he's going to begin comparing the truth of God with everything else that would exalt itself above or with the Lord. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things will not profit. They are their own witness. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Now, Isaiah is speaking poetically, and what he's saying is they don't understand, but they need to know. They need to understand that these idols in which they place their trust are all, none of them can help them. Now, here's, here's what you see taking place in the historic, uh, historical Israel. Israel was wrapped up in idol worship, totally given over to idol worship. We see it archaeologically, historically, and then something happens. They go into captivity. That captivity they go into is into Babylon, the center of idol worship. And while they're in captivity in Babylon, God cures them of their idol worship. And their idol worship stops. Do they have other trouble? Yeah, but their idol worship's going to stop. Here he's over and over again going to say in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, most of the major prophets, many of the minor prophets, over and over and over again, he's going to tell them how useless idols are. But they, they would do it. He's even here going to try to show them how ridiculous the concept is. Who would form a God or mold an image? I mean, think about how ludicrous that is. Even Nebuchadnezzar building this mighty statue and having people bow down, that's your God. You made it. What can it do? It can't do anything. It just sits there. It has no power. And here the Lord is saying, who would form a God? Who would mold an image that profits him nothing? It just sits there. It just sits there. It has no power. Surely all his companions will be ashamed. Everyone associated with the idol are going to be ashamed. And the workmen, they're mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. Now, when we saw Shennacherib, remember Shennacherib was a ruler of the Assyrian nation. Basically, the Assyrians ruled for around 700 years. So that's a long time. That's uh, almost three Three times, more than three times how long we've been a country. They ruled the world for 700 years. And when they ruled the world, they used to go around to the different kingdoms and they would list for them all of these gods that couldn't save the people. And they would tell them, neither will your God save you. We're coming. And many people, many city-states and countries would commit mass suicide rather than fall into the hands of of the Assyrians. So when we look at it, 
He's saying, you guys are going to stand up and you're going to pray and you're going to do all these things to this statue that you made. And then you're going to be disappointed. When the time comes for salvation, the statue can't do nothing for you. It's not going to be able to save. It's not going to be able to deliver. He says now in verse 12, the blacksmith with tongs. Now listen how he says this. The blacksmith with tongs works one in the coals. He's talking about an idol. He's, he's pushing around this lump of steel or some type of metal, gold, whatever, silver. He's working it, tossing it around in the fire with tongs. And then he fashions it with hammers. He takes it out and beats it into shape. And he works it with the strength of his own arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So while he's building this God, this incredibly powerful being, he still runs out of energy, runs out of strength, and because he hasn't had enough water, he, he becomes faint. He, he comes near to passing out while he's, he's creating this worthless image. Then he looks at the, the uh, craftsman or the carpenter. Verse 13, the craftsman stretches out his ruler. He marks out one with chalk and fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedar for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles and bakes bread. Indeed, then he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burnt half of it in the fire. With that half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Oh, I am warm. See, I have a fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image, he falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. God's, God's, as he's laying out this case through the prophet Isaiah, he said, do you not hear how ridiculous this is? But listen, before we're too harsh on these guys, there are two forms of idolatry. One form of idolatry is that form of idolatry that would make a God. The other form of idolatry are those that would make a God in their own image. God lays out for us in his word what he's like. Sometimes we think we have to apologize for God or soften God or make excuses for God. And when we do that, that is idolatry. We're taking who God is and we're changing him into something that's more palatable. God doesn't want to be changed into something that's more palatable. He wants to be who he is. When we take the truth of God and we distort it, then we, just like they, are molding for ourselves a God and an image that we appreciate. Well, God for me is, or God for you is, well, God is who he is, period. Who he says he is in his word, absolute truth. We take that word and we say, what God says is, is right. If it disagrees with me, God's not wrong, nor does he need to be welcomed in to the 21st century. He don't need it. He knows what he's doing. I don't. So we can trust God. We can put our hope and our faith 
and our trust in him. We don't want to be making God in an image that suits us or that pleases us. Rather, we need to trust God as he reveals himself to us. Look what he said in verse 18. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and ate it. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? What's he talking about? Listen, God reveals through David in the Psalms that we become like the gods we serve. We become like the gods we serve. If our God is a wooden image, empty-headed, mute, can't speak, weak, can't move, uh, deaf, can't hear, then we become just like him. That's why he says, hey, their, their hearts won't understand, their eyes won't see, their ears won't hear. Why? Because they made a choice to follow after a God, a God that's going to lead them to a place where they don't have a relationship with the true and living God. Those choices that we make affect who we are, what we're going to be, what we're going to experience, what we're going to see, what we're going to be able to understand. The scripture tells in the New Testament, right, that the word of God cannot be understood by the carnal, by the natural man, because it is spiritual. So it must be spiritually, spiritually understood, right? It has to be It has to be grasped and taught. The Word and the Holy Spirit working through our lives opens our eyes that we can see. But if we're following after an idol, then we say, God's just not speaking to me anymore. Well, there might be a reason for that. Because you're following that which cannot speak, see, or hear. So you will not be able to see, speak, or hear. It blinds us. It, 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 It deafens us to that which God wants to do in our life. Now look at verse 21. Now remember these, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. He's saying to them, you guys don't belong to the idols you serve. You're mine. I like that God lays out for them ownership. And I love every time God uses Jacob and Israel together. Because it also speaks of God's ability to transform a life. From one to another. To transform a nature, just like yours and mine. That we're not to be uh, transformed into the image of this world, but to be conformed into the image of His Son. That we would become more and more like Jesus. And so we want to see that working in our life. How does that work in our life? It works because we become like the gods we serve. We serve Jesus, we follow the Lord, we put our faith and trust in Him. We're going to become like him. And he wants Israel to know you're mine. For I have formed you. You are my servant. Now listen, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Did you hear that? Anybody comes, knocks on your door, and wants to tell you that God is finished with Israel. He's done with Israel. He doesn't have any more plans for Israel. Israel failed and lost all their relationship with God when Jesus was crucified on the cross, 
needs to read the Word of God. Because these same phrases are repeated in Romans 9, 10, and 11. By the way, that's after Jesus died on the cross. Same phrases. What is he saying? Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. For I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now keep in mind, the idea for redemption, the word picture for redemption, is is twice mine. Once created by, once bought by. I made you, and I bought you. And that's what God did for us. He created us. And he bought us by his sacrifice upon the cross. You are redeemed. Twice mine. God here looking forward to the forgiveness of the sins that Israel had. Now, then he cries out. Verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth in the singing, you mountains and forests and every tree. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Look what he's saying. He's saying, rejoice, rejoice, because I am going to redeem this nation, this stiff-necked people, these people who are always complaining and always going down the wrong way and always getting lost. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to work it out. <clears throat> they will have a relationship with God and glorify myself, himself, in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now you see that. Capital L-O-R-D again, right? Thus says the Lord. Who's the Redeemer? Who died for their sins? Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He is the Redeemer. He is also the Savior. Isaiah, the Lord says, capital L-O-R-D, I am the Savior and there is no other. Jesus is the Savior. There is no other because they are one God. In three distinct persons, it's the doctrine of the Trinity, one God, compound unity, the three in one. Here he says, listen, the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers. That's those guys who try to foretell the future. By the way, you, you know what happened to the Psychic Friends Network. Anybody remember Psychic Friends Network? They went bankrupt, yeah. Couldn't see it coming, right? Apparently their psychic friends were being frustrated. And drives diviners mad who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. Isn't that what uh, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? That the wise become foolish also in... Uh, in Romans chapter 1, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. By the way, while Isaiah is writing this, Judah is destroyed. But he also is going to go on to allude to the fact that Jerusalem is destroyed. And that's still standing. That is yet future, a yet future prophecy that is fulfilled at the coming of King Nebuchadnezzar when he destroys uh, the nation of Israel. But now we get into a really neat section 
of, uh, of Isaiah. Let's look what it says. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Who's Cyrus? Uh, he's a ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. He will be born in about 200 years. He's not born yet. He doesn't exist when Isaiah writes that. And God names him by name. 200 years before he's born. God says, I'll call Cyrus. Cyrus, my shepherd. And he will perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you will be built. Now Jerusalem's built by this prophecy in around uh, probably about 100 years from this prophecy, give or take a few Jerusalem's going to be laid waste. But here Isaiah is, is preempting that. He says that it's Cyrus who's going to say to Jerusalem, you will be built into the temple, your foundation will be laid. And Cyrus, when he comes, when he turns the children of Israel back loose from captivity, remember they're taken into captivity by Babylon, they're going to be released by Cyrus. All they're going to do during Cyrus's reign is lay the foundation to the temple. Just like Isaiah said. 200 years before it was done. Name by name before he was born. Who he was. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. So Isaiah lays it out for us twice. Twice he's going to name him. Now listen, let's back up and look at verse 27 again. Who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. So what is it that Cyrus did? Cyrus has a, a general in his army called Ugar, Ugarbarti, or you, I don't know, I can't say it. But anyway, he leads his army. They come up against Babylon. Babylon, remember, has a leader. The ruler of Babylon at this time is Nabonidus. But Nabonidus, he hates Babylon. So he decided to leave Babylon to his nephew, and he's gone out to, to be somewhere else. He doesn't want to defend it. He doesn't want to be bothered with it. So, so he kind of turns it all over. We know the name of his nephew, right? Belshazzar. Remember the fella, many, many, Tekel Upharsin? The writing on the wall, having a party while all those guys are outside. And Daniel comes to him and says, you've been, you've been weighed into balances and found wanting. Today your kingdom will be taken from you and given to another. And that night, Babylon falls to this guy. How's he do it? Well, Babylon's this big city, but the river Euphrates actually flows into the city. But that river Euphrates that flows into the city, it, it flows underneath the wall. And the water's high. You have to hold your breath and, and swim. And even if you swam underneath the, the, in the water, the guards up on top, you'd be easy pickings for. And they had a gate under the water, so you couldn't come through unless the gate was open. So what is it? What did they do? They diverted the Euphrates and brought the Euphrates River down to thigh level, draining the water down into a swamp so that the army could walk under the wall. And when they got to where that gate was, it was open. No guards on top. Why? Because they're all in a party with Belshazzar. Because nobody could take Babylon. Listen, when Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persians, the people who lived in the city didn't know it for three days. 
That's how quiet it was. Can you imagine the United States of America falling to another country and not knowing about it for three days? Not knowing that it had occurred. But that's what it's like. Here the Lord seems to allude to that when he says, Listen, you'll say to the deep, be dry, and I'll dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd, he will perform all my pleasure. So God's hand is going to be with him. Now look at chapter 45, verse 1. To Cyrus whose right hand I have held. God's saying, I'm going to raise him up. I'm going to equip him. I'm going to bring him. Okay, God, by his right hand, is going to do this. To subdue nations before him. He's going to conquer 46 nations, never lose. 46 nations will fall before him. To subdue nations before him. To loose the armor of kings. By the way, literally, that phrase can also be to loose their loins. Sound familiar? Remember that fellow Belshazzar who was having the big party and then that hand came up and writ? The scripture says that he loosed his loins. By the way, that's not good. But he, he loosed his loins. It says here, who will loose the armor of the kings. And next, look at the third one. To open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. The gates under the Euphrates, under the wall into Babylon, were not closed. They were open. And the whole army just walked in. The whole army just walked in and they fell before them. And what is the Lord saying? He's saying, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to subdue. I'm going to loose. I'm going to open. They will not be shut. It's God with his hand on Cyrus and bringing him through all of these things. Speaking about it 200 years before Cyrus is born. Now, in case you're wondering, this is what we call in predictive prophecy as specific. And by the way, he didn't get Cyrus's name wrong by one letter. It's not just close. It's exact. Down to the nitty-gritty of what Cyrus was going to do. In fact, when Cyrus, in about 220 years, reads this, you know what his next response is? Turns the children of Israel loose. Wow. They had written about me 200 years before I was born. Here I am. Guess I better let these guys loose. Oh, I, you can even read about it. In fact, if you want to uh, turn with me to Ezra. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. Yeah, it's ours. It's not going to help me. It's not 545 in mine. Yeah, thank you. I have them. I can tell you it's right before Nehemiah. Does that help you? I'm just going to go to Nehemiah and turn left. Hey, there he is. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. And when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brethren arose and built an altar of God, uh, the altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses 
and the man of God. And the fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries. So in chapter 3, we see the children of Israel already on their way, already in the land, already being a part of it. But in Ezra chapter 1, in verse 2, it says, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. By the way, remember the lesson we learned about the Lord? Capital L-O-R-D, the covenantial name of God? Cyrus uses it. Cyrus knows his name. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God has given to me. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you, or who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. For he is God, which is in Jerusalem, and whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of this place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, beside freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. That's what? Cyrus does in response to what Isaiah told us about him and as he reads it and as he discovers what God has laid out. Now he's saying with Cyrus he will be under God's divine leadership. By the way, people don't always like to know when a Gentile has God's divine leadership. That God's using a Gentile. They're not very thrilled about this. But look what he says. This is what God is speaking to Cyrus. I will go before you. Make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you treasures of darkness. When he conquered Asia, Cyrus got 30,000 pounds of gold. That qualifies to me as treasure. I will give you the treasures of the darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. That's an incredible prophecy, by the way. It it follows Cyrus throughout his his life, the conquest that he's going to have, lays out for all that Cyrus is going to do. And in the end, man, as as we look at it, it's... It's an incredible opportunity for us to see and hear what God said. I am the Lord, your God, who tells you the things that are about to come before they take place, before they come to pass. Sometimes 200 years before they're born. I'll tell you what his name's going to be, how he's going to conquer Babylon, that he's going to turn you loose, that you're going to go back and be able to, again, rebuild Jerusalem in the temple so it's a pretty incredible prophecy in isaiah by the way as a result of this prophecy uh great minds have uh, have uh decided that there must be four isaiahs who wrote isaiah the one isaiah who was about the time this all started and another isaiah who could write because it's historical it's not possible for isaiah to be predictive he's too exacting so saying, therefore, that there cannot be any supernatural. There must have been four Isaiahs. Amazing. You have to go to seminary to come up with an idea like that. You have to go through it, get your bachelor's degree, your master's degree, and your doctor, and when you become a doctor, you get that stupid, that you think there had to be four Isaiahs. 
No, there didn't have to be four Isaiahs. One Isaiah. There's no reason to dispute the authorship of Isaiah at all. Zero. Except that Isaiah knew 200 years before Cyrus was born what his name was. And that, of course, is not possible, right? Unless you can get past Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. You get past that. Everything else makes sense. Everything else will come together. So the Lord laying out for us, again, a pretty incredible prophecy. And getting exciting because we're building up our our way. We're going to be entering into the Messianic prophecies very soon uh, that speak directly to Jesus. So as we consider what we see tonight, what we see finishing up chapter 44 and beginning to open the door to chapter 45 of these prophecies... We need to realize and recognize what God's asking for from his people is a relationship, a trust, that you believe, that you put your faith and your hope and your trust in me, that you cast your cares upon me because I care for you, that you don't make me in your own image, but you take for a matter of who I say I am, that that's fact. And you live and grow and, and breathe and have your, your being, all those things, as a result of, of that stuff. So we want to have that. We want to have that concept. Now, by the way, while you're looking at this, keep in mind as well, uh, in October of 539, when Cyrus came into lower Mesopotamia uh, and takes the nation of Babylon, Daniel chapter 6 stated that it would, the city would be taken without so much as a fight. That it would just fall. Who's going to believe that? How Daniel know? Well, the Bible tells us how Daniel knew. You know how Daniel knew? He read God's word daily and he sought the Lord. And God revealed himself to him. We want to follow that same example. That example that says, hey, I want to, I want to seek the Lord in his word. I want to seek the Lord in prayer. And I want God to reveal himself to me as well. So Sunday nights, we, we close out the last uh, part of Sunday night service with a time of prayer. Just opening up our hearts congregationally to the Lord. If the Lord lays a scripture on your heart you want to share, share it. If the Lord lays a song on your heart you want to sing it, sing it. If, as you pray, as we sing, we just want to try to give opportunity for everyone who's here tonight that feels like uh, that they have an utterance or they want an opportunity uh, to call upon the name of the Lord that they have that time. So we just ask that you be sensitive to that time and uh, uh, try to keep everything down to three to five minutes and, and, uh, and we'll all have an opportunity to share and, and go before the Lord. So let's close out uh, this evening and open up a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just come before you this evening. Lord, we just pray, Father, that God, as we seek your face, as we come to know who you are, what your word declares, Father, we pray that you would meet us here in this place. God, as we come before you with hearts open to you to receive from you, Father, that you might speak to our needs through uh, just pouring out a a word of of knowledge as someone shares out of the word, something that's going to apply to one of us, Lord God, or Or, Father, that you help us to encourage one another as we lift each other up in prayer. Lord, we pray, Father, that you indeed would be glorified and magnified in this place, God, as we seek to honor you 
as who you say you are, not who we think you should be. That we receive the truth of who God is by what God has said in his word. Nothing else like it, no place else. We hold in our hands the absolute truth of God. Lord, we ask that as we seek you in this time, Father God, that your spirit would rule and reign in this place, God, that you would touch our hearts, that you would open our hearts, Lord Jesus, as we desire, Father God, just to draw near to you. So, Father, as we do, join us in this place, Lord God. Guide us, lead us, be glorified, Father, as uh, we seek to honor you in everything that we do.